Hey everyone, and welcome to Food. I'm Kate Bittman. We're so glad to be here. And please remember that if you have questions or feedback, you can email us at food at markbittman.com. Please also check us out online at bitmanproject.com. Our new site is growing by the day now with more than 500 of Mark's best recipes. Last week, Carrie wrote about the versatility of brown rice cereal. She used it to make a crunchy accompaniment to a kimchi salad. She used it in a caramel apple cobbler, so basically everything but cereal. And Mark wrote about his current enthusiasm for mushrooms on toast using dried mushrooms. Plus, Tucker Shaw on good enough being good enough when it comes to cooking. That's fitmanproject.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. 
AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Our guest today is Patrick Joyce, who is a leading British social historian and the author of Remembering Peasants, A Personal History of a Vanished World, which just came out last week. Mark got an early copy, and when he saw the title, he, of course, thought, if this guy isn't writing about peasants and food, I'm disappointed, but I'll bet he is. And Patrick Joyce has done just that, and he's knowledgeable and articulate about it, And it's a subject that probably has not been given its proper due. Joyce is actually descended from Irish peasants and weaves personal stories, as well as the stories of many others, into his rich commemoration of this group of people that, as he says, and rightfully so, holds up our society, but that has all but vanished. I listened back to this interview yesterday, and I wasn't surprised that I didn't talk much. I was too busy listening and processing and learning, and I bet many of you will do the same. Welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for asking me on. And hi, Kate. Hello to you both. Um, Pat, your new book just appealed to me instantly. I often have arguments with people about using the word peasant, so the fact that you named the book Remembering Peasants, subtitled A Personal History of a Vanished World, as I said, appealed to me immediately. And and over the years, the word peasant has taken on new meanings and been co-opted and used incorrectly and seems to offend some people. So let's just start with that. What is a peasant? Right. Well, the word is tricky, obviously. As you say, it's overlain with all sorts of things, particularly derogatory things. Well, the word simply is taken from the French. Paysan means, you know, person of the land. Uh, at the most basic level, it would be some a worker on the land. As we've just been saying, it's sort of accrued all these connections as time has gone on. I suppose one way of looking at it would be to say, look, you know, let's have a stricter definition, which would be something like a family economy working on the farm at subsistence through many, many kinds of different sorts of tenure. I mean, the whole situation is extraordinarily complex when you get to, to look at it. Some people have, you know, long tenure, some have short, some have no tenure, no protection, basically. So a kind of narrow version, in a sense, but the useful analytic one would be um, those who 
small farmers working with family labor under the direction of the mother and the father, working basically but not solely for subsistence. But of course, you know, life's more complicated than that. The word peasant tended to be used about all sorts of people in the countryside, um, about landless laborers. The key thing you might think was access to land. But what I was really writing about in the book was not so much you know, kind of the strict definition of peasant, but peasant society. I was trying to locate the peasant in a world in which he, she operated. Now, a simple illustration of that would be that, you know, a smallholder who owned land, not sorry, who had access to land. They didn't usually own it. Strict definition, we'd call him a peasant, but or her a peasant, because women had women um, had access to land, owned land in different kinds of ways. It's a more complex than usual situation is understood. Uh, but then that that person, that man or woman, might have children who would be landless laborers on somebody else's farm. Or they might be farm servants who go out to work. And then it's part of a kind of life cycle. You know, they might be laborers at one time, servants, then they would come back. And then there's the question of inheritance. Who inherits the farm? It's usually the oldest. What happens to the others? They often become landless laborers or they emigrate or whatever, like my own people. So those others in the family, they're peasants as well. So that the people are connected. The thread that connects the whole thing, I think, is family economy, subsistence, and the the commune, the village, the community, you know, the different terms, the kind of hierarchy of distinctions, but the unity of protecting their collective interests. So there's always a tension in peasant society between the forces that are pushing them apart and the forces that are pulling them together. But the forces that are pulling them together are probably the most fundamental. You know, they've got to work out some way of surviving, and they do that with all sorts of strategies. So the peasant commune really... Uh, must guard endlessly against this question of envy, of being split apart. So this notion of the limited good is very important, I think. And it's important for us as well. You know, the world is not limitless. They work in a world of want, deprivation. You know, they can't bend the world to their will. So they have to recognize the limits of their capacities. And they have to recognize the limited good that is in the world. Well, I think that's sort of pretty prescient. When it comes to thinking about our present condition, that there is, you know, what can they tell us? I think that's one thing they tell us, that we live in a world of limited resources, not in this kind of vision of modernity, which is one of endless increase. The whole idea of progress, classically, which is grinding to a halt in our cultures. I'm just wondering if my perception that peasants if peasants are the people who are neither nobility nor tradespeople but landless or non-owning farmers non-landowning farmers but they can be owning as well yeah okay is it a fair generalization that they would work collectively as well as individually that there was land that was worked for the for the communal good or it was really everybody worked on their own plots let me just give you an example, thinking about my own people in the west of Ireland. Before they were, as it were, planted on their own plots, they lived in what was called a clacken system, which is a kind of rudimentary village form in which the strips of land were scattered around the village or around the immediate area. So to negotiate your own land, you had to go over somebody else's land. Uh, it was in your interest to keep your land in a decent shape because 
you didn't want to interfere with your neighbour's land. Or if your cow strayed over into your neighbour's land, there were no fences. People were, by necessity, uh, forced to be um, cooperative, yeah? because things were scattered. And it just made no sense uh, to kind of live as if you lived totally, you know, farming your own strip. Communal farming was, you know, a kind of practical um, material necessity, as it were. But then you get many kinds of many kinds of landholding, as in Russia, which are, have a communal element to them. The Russian mir has various kinds of collective ownership and the, the capacity to kind of actually governmentally organise the land, decide what you know X should do and Y should do. So. If we think about, just to let the Irish example, and I'm sort of chopping up things here a bit, but um, before the um, the striping of the land, as it was put in the contemporary terms, each person working on their long stripe of land, their, their consolidated farm, the, the system I've des- described, the Clacken system, where things were much more jumbled up, then you get this kind of more um, unit-specific kind of farming. But even in that, there was all sorts of cooperative activity. In the book, I talk about a classical study by two great American anthropologists of Ireland in the 1940s, and they describe in some detail things um, like terms like coring, which is, you know, um, cooperative labour between farms when it comes to haymaking, say or, you know, access on the common land for sheep. So there would be all sorts of kind of cooperative activity going on. So it's neither one nor the other. It's a kind of, um, when the need arises, cooperation exists. But then that doesn't mean that there's not competition at other times. So, Pat, you mentioned your family's connection, and you you call the book an homage to your own. Can you explain the connection a little bit? My connection is with what might be called North Connemara, Joyce country. Poor sheep farming, prone to emigration, not just prone to emigration, actually, you know, there's this saying that people were born to leave, and they were born to leave. The eldest one got the farm, the others, well, my mother was one of 14. She was from Wexford in the southeast, which is more prosperous, but still, you know, we're not talking about rich people, very far from it, you know. I mean, how 14, 14 children, 10 survived. How do you how do you manage? They, they emigrate, you know, because there's nothing there apart from the, the family farms. In the West, it's even worse kind of thing, you know. So there's this great history of emigration and return and then of separation, you know, profound sadness in, in many ways, you know. So my parents came to England a long time ago, almost a century ago, because I'm getting on. They married late. Uh, my father was born in 1907. So they brought with them the kind of 19th century, in a sense, in their heads. And as emigrants, they become, like most emigrants, they become more Irish, Polish, French when they land in the other country, as it were. So they lived in this, in a sense, they lived in the 19th century, or at least they lived in the early 20th century. And they carried that old uh, rural culture, Catholic, profoundly Catholic, as in Poland, say, in that old, you know, conservative Catholic mould, which is now much undeservedly criticised. 
So I grew up in that world, but, you know, I was born in 45, living in the London Irish community, and we were kind of more Irish than the Irish. Uh, it's not an unfamiliar for that first generation. And then as my life went on, as a child I went to Wexford, as a young man, and all my life I'd gone back to the West and to Wexford as well, and I've seen it happen, basically. You know, the vanishing of the peasant class, the small farmer class, whatever we want to call them, on those repeated returns, I saw the thing occur in a human form, you know. I saw the generations change. I saw how they, re they, they held on to the past, the language particularly, because the people I come from are Irish speakers, and there's a tiny, tiny infinitesimal proportion who are native Irish speakers as their first language. But those were my folks in the West. And in a sense, it is an area called Joyce Country, but we were witnessing something in Europe that's profoundly important, I think, which is the withering away of uh, a culture, you're, um, a culture that's lasted for a millennia. Um, but you're seeing that across the world as well, you know. India, the last great peasant country, but even there, you know, the unit size of places is going up, of holdings, and the, um, and the, uh, the number of people actually working on the land is decreasing. But uh, if you look in the book, I've got a section on astonishing. Um, there are not that many figures in the book, but you know, like statistics. But when you look at the figures, they're extraordinary, like South Korea or Turkey, uh, lots of Latin America. I mean, South Korea in uh, 1960 was, uh, I, don't, I can't remember the figure exactly, but 80% agricultural people on the land. It's now one of the most important industrial countries in the world. And you get the same, you, you see the same transformation since since 1945 in um, Europe. It's going on um, rapidly post-1945, but it, it's there earlier as well. You know, like France was a very peasant country, 1914. This is what you mean when you refer to the vanishing? And yeah. can you sort of talk about that on a global scale, what it looks like in terms of tens or hundreds of millions of people? Well, you know, this is, I mentioned India, but China as well. You know, lots of people still live in the countryside in China, but they don't work the land. They often go to work, you know, long distance, medium distance in factories, and they go back and live, or they're seasonal workers, you know, they go back to the villages, which most of the time are full of old men, old women, and children. So, the you know, the transformations are pretty profound. And it's, you know, this sense, as an historian, it's this sense of something that is very old, very important, being lost, you know, a way of life that really can tell us, I mean, harking back to what I was saying about the limited good idea and the way in which they conceive of the of a world uh, which we could, uh, with advantage, learn from ourselves, you know, this notion that uh, there are limits to our world and to our understanding as well. So the peasant's idea of... of being ignorant about the world. Peasants are constantly called ignorant, but they do have um, they do have a lot going for themselves when they say they are ignorant about the world, and that is mankind's condition. We are ignorant about the world, you know. There are limits to our knowledge, not just limits to the amount of goods and produce and the amounts of things we can consume. Stay tuned for more from Patrick Joyce, Mark, and me. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no insulation, or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. 
Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. You say that the word peasant carries a curse with it. Mm. What do you mean by that? You know, like I've got a little section in the book about, you know, like terms that are used, like uh, a rube or a, a hayseed or a hick or, mm-hmm. a, you know. Uh, every culture has a whole range of these things, these terms that mean somebody who works on the land. So the word peasant itself in England, you know, you're a peasant means you're ignorant, basically, you know. Your oafish, mm-hmm. again, the synonyms for peasant, oaf, boar, um, they're, they're pretty much endless. You get them in, you get them in, in every culture, every language. You cafone in, in, uh, in Italian is, you know, sort of a, a hick. Somebody who's dumb, somebody who's stupid. I mean, it's not surprising. Mm-hmm. They are in the, in the social hierarchy. They're at the bottom. They hold the whole thing up, but they don't get any respect for holding the whole thing up, you know. They just get right. denigration. So, you know, coming out of older ways of looking at the world, which preceded a kind of class analysis, um, they were the bottom of the um, bottom of the hierarchy, you know. The military, those who, those who fought, those who prayed, those who worked, um, and then at the bottom of those who worked were the peasants, you know, which is not quite how peasants saw it, but that's the... Curse of Cain. There is a particularly in Poland. The um, there is a connection between the idea that the, you know, there's a biblical curse on the sons of Noah, isn't it? And they're divided. The, the different sons. One son represents black people. One son represents those who work the land. So these things go back a long way, you know. And people have inherited that religious discourse about peasants, so that they carry a particular curse. And the curse is of Cain, who killed his brother Abel. And, of course, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. They're expelled from paradise, and they have to go and tend the land by themselves. There is, in the book, there is an account of the way in which, you know, going back to thousands of years ago, the, the curse is inscribed in religious discourse, in religious understandings, in the power of the curse itself, you know as a religious curse. This is a sort of a bunch of questions rolled into one, I guess. But you've talked about a little bit about how peasants acknowledging that they don't understand the world is a kind of wisdom. I just wonder what what we should be mourning about the near loss of peasant life and 
and what we can learn, what we can still learn and take away from what peasant life has been and is like. Well, I talked about some of the ways earlier in terms of notions of limitations of understanding, limitations of, you know, which are connected to our seemingly endless drive towards consumerism, the way in which they live in a world which could tell us something about the um, the pointlessness of that drive, you know, um, the way in which we seem to be addicted to it. Of course, there is a political lesson here as well. There's a kind of moral and in a sense, religious or spiritual aspect to peasants. Let me just deal with that first and quickly. Um, I have a section in the book about, uh, and I tune into Seamus Heaney, the great Irish poet, who, who written a lovely essay uh, in the obscure journal many years ago, and he uses the term religiari and the, the origin of the word, or one of the etymological interpretations of the origin, is to bind. In the book, I talk about the way in which and the case, you know, the example is Poland. Well, I talk about the way in which the, the natural, the spiritual, and the divine are, in a sense, separate spheres, but they're intertwined continuously. And Heaney has a wonderful essay which echoes his poetry about how all these aspects of what we could loosely call belief are all bound together, Virgin Mary, with the idea that in Ireland you have a kind of parallel race of people who live alongside you, you know, the the fairies so-called, but not the Anglo-Saxon fairies. These are a pretty dark mob, you know, pretty pretty rough bunch. Um, so, you know, there's a kind of bi a binding with the world, but a binding with each other as well, in this sense that I've been talking about, with all the all the negative things, the forces tearing peasant culture apart as well. You've got, you know, the objection, the poverty. Peasants are of great value because they, as I say, they help us to think about the limitations of our own world. They help us to think about uh, a kind of binding to the world and a binding to each other. And I hope that, you know, peasants are not capitalist. They've lived cheek by jowl with capitalism for many centuries, but in a sense, well, they are not essentially capital, you know, capitalist. They don't wish to acquire more cap uh, capital to then acquire more capital and going bonding capital, you know, is a limit to what they feel is appropriate. And they don't think of money as we think of money either. You know, put, if you put money aside for animals, that is a separate kind of animal to buy an animal or something. That's um, not just in a t separate pot. That's a, a totally different entity from the money you might use to pay your rent. But anyway, that's going off on a bit of a tangent. One of the things I did want to talk about was, you know, pets are not necessarily anti-capitalist, but they live in a capital in a world which isn't isn't essentially capitalist, and we recognise the limitations of capitalism increasingly. I mean, I'm politically on the left, um, but I think it runs across the board. The reception of the book in England is quite interesting, actually, because they see right-wing outlets and uh, centre and left-wing outlets taking up and discussing the book. So I think it's kind of talking to a particular kind of time which is looking to to be talked to, in a sense, you know. That's looking for something, looking for something beyond the limitation. I don't want to put peasants forward as simply, you know, like our tutors or our educators. I didn't write the book so they could be examples. I wrote the book, in a sense, as an act of love. But when I'm asked about what was powering it, what was behind that, there was some sense that there was immense value there. Is there anything else you want to add? I think we do have one wrap-up question that's 
sort of yeah. a joke and irrelevant. But other than that, I think we're good. Oh, uh, I've spoken a lot there, uh, but uh, I have to be stopped. Uh, what's your wrap-up question, by the way? We ask every guest, what did you have for dinner last night? And this isn't necessarily a food interview, <laughs> but it's certainly food-related. So what did you have for dinner last night? <laughs> well, it's the old sort of English-Italian standby, which my son made, spaghetti bolognese. Spag ball. Spag ball, yeah. I just learned about Brits calling it spag ball not long, like last month I learned about spag ball. Well, a whole, a whole new that. experience awaits you. <laughs> anyway, um, I look forward to um, learning what you've, what you've made of me. Thank you, Pat. Have a good journey, trip. Thank you, Pat. Okay, Bye take now. care. Bye. Bye. Thank you to Patrick Joyce for joining us today. You can get a copy of Remembering Peasants wherever you like to buy books. Thank you to my co-host, Marky, and to our thoughtful engineer, Davis Lloyd. And thank you for listening. We're back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.